book of Genesis in the ninth chapter of the book of Genesis Okay, Genesis chapter 9, chapter 10, and chapter 11 this morning. We're not going to be exhaustive, but we're going to hit as much of the teaching in these chapters as we can. So the ninth chapter brings us to the end of the life of Noah. Then the tenth chapter gives us the offspring of his children, the 70 nations of the earth and the 11th chapter, the first part of that chapter will deal with the dispersion and why God had to come down and scatter the people in the 11th chapter. So we're going to learn a lot today. There's no way we can be exhausted, but we'll do our best to give you what you need. Okay, amen? All right, the ninth chapter of the book of Genesis. Obviously, this brings us to the time after the flood. Uh, verse 1, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. Everybody said, Amen. Amen. Father, we come before you. We ask your blessing today to be upon the reading and teaching of your holy word. We give you all glory, honor, and praise. In Jesus' name, Amen. You may be seated in the name of the Lord. All right. We are obviously beyond the flood now. Uh, the eighth chapter, if you will look at verse 21 praise the Lord 821 the Bible says the Lord smelled a sweet savor and the Lord said in his heart I will not again curse the ground anymore for man's sake for the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth neither will I again smite any more every living as I have done while the earth remaineth seed time and harvest and cold and heat and summer and winter and day and night shall not cease. So if you look at verse 21 again, the latter part of that, the Lord makes a statement here. He says, For the imagination of men's heart is evil from his youth. Now, as we get into the ninth chapter, you're going to see God makes a promise that He will no longer destroy this earth by a worldwide flood. Uh, but that doesn't mean that he will not destroy it in the future by a worldwide fire. Y'all believe that? Peter's very clear that in the future there's going to be the destruction or really the renovation of the earth by fire. But God will make a promise to man that he's not going to destroy it by a worldwide flood any longer. So there will be worldwide fire in the future, Second Peter 3 but no worldwide flood. There will be pockets of judgment in the earth. There will be floods in the earth, but it will not be a worldwide flood. Now, notice something very important. He tells us in verse 21, uh, his estimation of man, that the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Now, the reason why that is put there is because God wants us to get it, that even though he judged the world by a great flood, that didn't change the heart of man. Amen? It didn't change the heart of man. So man is in the need of redemption. He's in the need of salvation. The judgments of God doesn't necessarily change the heart of man. 
Do you understand that? If it did, then God would have to judge man like a worldwide flood every year. The judgments of God do not normally change the heart of man. You can look at the book of Revelation and you can see as the judgments of God begin to be poured out upon the earth in the future, in the time of the tribulation period, the Bible is very clear that man repented not of his sin. Now you would think as God's judging the world uh, that it would cause man to change. But the judgments of God don't normally change the heart of man. God can use that and hopefully that brings man to God. But man still needs redemption. Okay, so that's why the Lord points that out. That the imaginations of, of man's heart is evil from his youth. That means that every one of us in this church need redemption. We need to be born again. We need the spirits of the Lord. Hallelujah. So the judgments of God, they do come and they will continue to come. And eventually it will be a worldwide fire. But that doesn't change the heart of man. Man needs redemption. So uh, we move from that into the ninth chapter and we see uh, Noah and his sons. God commands them to do certain things. He says, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. So just like he said before about the animals, that they were to come out of the ark and they were to replenish the earth, repopulate the earth. Now that same command is given uh, to mankind that man was supposed to repopulate or replenish the earth. And then verse 2, we see God's care so that that can take place. Uh, there will be a fear that is on beast, the beast of the earth, so that uh, they will fear man. Verse 2 says, And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every fowl of the air, upon all that moveth upon the earth and upon all the fish of the sea. Into your hands are they delivered. Every moving thing that liveth shall be meat for you, even as the green herb have I given you all things. So in order for man to be able to replenish and repopulate the earth, by the way, by the time we get to the 11th chapter and the dispersion, there's about 30,000 people that have repopulated the earth in about 340 years or so uh, after the flood. So during that time, from the flood to the Tower of Babel, about 340 years, 30,000 people or so have repopulated the earth. That's according to scholars who study uh, how fast the earth populates, okay? So anyway, uh, that command is obeyed. And the way to keep that going is that animals will not... Uh, attack man all the time they will fear man so God put inside of the animal uh, a fear for man now does it mean that animals sometimes won't attack man for whatever reasons if they're startled whatever if you get in their territory they will still attack man but animals fear man because God put that in them to fear man now when we get in the tribulation period the Bible is going to talk about it uh, in that revelation time frame in the tribulation period, animals will attack man. They won't fear man anymore. Okay? So we're, we're seeing God's provision here that is allowing man to replenish the earth by keeping the beast in a state of fear of man. Now, verse 3 tells us uh, that every moving thing that liveth shall be meat for you, even as the green herb have I given you all things. Genesis 1, we found out that vegetables were given to man to eat. Now, after the flood, meat is given to man to eat. Okay? So it is biblical for you to eat vegetables. It is biblical for you to eat meat. And people say, well, I don't believe we should eat meat. Well, the Bible is very clear that God gave 
in this chapter after the flood uh, meat for us to eat. Okay? So what do we eat then? We eat vegetables, Genesis 1, and we eat meat. Praise God. Now if you want to be a vegetarian, that's fine. But don't walk around and tell everybody that they, they can't eat meat. Just because you don't eat meat. Right? And, and you know, if your children bring this to your attention and say, well, the Bible says we're supposed to eat meat, not our vegetables, that's not an excuse for them to not eat vegetables at the table. All right? So anyway, biblically, we can eat meat and we can eat vegetables. Uh, man did not eat meat before the flood, but after the flood, man gives us, or God gives man uh, this privilege of eating uh, meat. How many of y'all like to eat meat? How many like vegetables? Yeah, I like both. Hallelujah. I went on, I went about six months being a vegetarian and that didn't, I starved. I, I was hungry all the time. And, and I said, forget it. I just, I laid aside the vegetarian diet and then I ate everything. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Now, when we look in the book of Genesis, the Bible says every moving thing, if you look very carefully, that liveth shall be meat for you. So for the Gentiles, this is interesting, it's important for you. For the Gentiles, Every living thing can be eaten. Eaten. Now, what that means basically is this. If you look in the book of, what is it? Leviticus, the 11th chapter. It talks about clean and unclean animals. It's given to the Jewish people not to eat certain things. The way I understand it by the word of the Lord, by the Noahic covenant, which is a covenant for all mankind at this point, it's okay for you to eat every living thing as a Gentile, not as a Jew. But, that doesn't mean it's good for you. So even though I'm a Gentile and I'm not a Jewish person physically, I still try to stay away from some of the things that are unclean according to Leviticus chapter 11. Now you eat whatever you want to. You can eat the cockroaches of the sea, the shrimp. How many of y'all like shrimp? Don't lift your hand. Yeah, that's what I thought. <laughs> You like shrimp. That's the cockroach of the sea. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And some of y'all like pork, you know. And I knew a sister in the Lord. She talked about the way they used to slaughter the pigs, you know, and they'd cut that leg off and lift it up and all this pus and stuff's flowing out of the... <laughs> but y'all like pork. Amen. But... Hallelujah. And, and you know, every known disease, every known disease to man is found in the hog. So if you like pork, just, just go ahead and eat it. But just remember, when you pray over that pork, it doesn't change the nature of the beast. But if you want Bible for what you're doing, Genesis chapter 9 and according, uh, under the Noahic covenant, you just just tell your pastor. I, the Bible says I can eat everything. Mm -hmm. I'm going to go with progressive revelation. I'm going to stay in in Leviticus chapter 11. Do the best I can. Amen. But anyway, praise the Lord. So after the flood, we have the ability now to eat uh, meats. This gives a refreshment to mankind. He's supposed to replenish the earth. We have the protection of God against animals, and now we have the provision of God for refreshment of man. Not only do, do we eat vegetables, but also meat. Now, as we go on down through here, 
the Bible says in verse 4, there are some restrictions on that. But the flesh with the life thereof, which is the blood thereof, shall you not eat. So it, you can't eat the blood that is in the animal. Okay, so when you prepare your food, you want to make sure that you cook it to the point that there's the blood's out of it, you know. And it's okay to eat a medium steak. So we're a little pink in there. That's not blood. But there's some people, when they cut it and the blood's flowing out off the, off the plate under the table. All right? So the Bible forbids you to eat blood. There's people in the world today, they still eat the blood of the animals. They'll, they'll kill, you know, the cattle. They'll drain the blood and take the blood and drink the blood. But that is forbidden even to the Gentiles to do by the word of the Lord. So you can eat various kinds of meat, but you cannot drink the blood because God is putting respect here already upon the blood. Leviticus chapter 17, the Bible says that it's the, the blood, the life of the flesh is in the blood, and it's the blood that makes an atonement for the soul. So right off, God is putting respect on the blood. He said, don't eat the blood. Look at your neighbor and say, don't eat the blood. Okay? So, so you need to quit going to the store and buying blood and drinking it. Now, surely nobody in here does that. I know you eat the cockroach of the sea and you eat... The swine, you know. But does anybody in here go to the store and buy blood and drink the blood? Ugh. Well, if you do, you're, you're against the Bible. You are not to drink the blood of an animal. Because God has put respect on the blood. It's the atonement. Yes, ma'am. I, I eat liver. I don't believe so. Mm -mm. No, I eat liver. Hallelujah. Fried liver. It's got to be fried liver. <laughs> I mean, that's, I mean, I don't eat it all the time. I eat it every once in a while. Don't treat me like that. You know, it, it's sort of one of them things. If you go to Furs Cafeteria and you got chicken fried steak and you're worried about your health, you got chicken fried steak. You got liver. Always go with the liver because it's supposed to be a little bit more healthy. And I just cover it with gravy. <laughs> What's wrong with you? You don't know what's good. Liver covered with gravy, that's the good stuff. Well, I guess. Anyway. So to answer your question, as far as I know, that's that, that you know, but they cook it. So if there's any blood in it, it's you know, it's out of there, hopefully. Okay? That's the limitations right here, right? Don't drink the blood or eat the blood. It is forbidden in the word of the Lord to do that. Now, Satanists. People who are involved in, in Satanism will drink the blood. And they drink the blood in mockery of the blood of Jesus. See, they disobey this command. They don't respect the blood, all right, of Jesus. So they make a mockery of it. They'll drink blood and all kinds of stuff in their particular services. So anyway, the Bible tells us this restriction. Do not eat the blood. Now, verse 5. Uh, next thing. And by the way, this is known as the Noahic Covenant, the covenant with Noah. And then he says, And surely your blood of your lives will I require at the hand of every beast will I require it. And at the hand of man, at the hand of every man's brother will I require the life of man. Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God made he man. So now we see something very interesting. 
God commands capital punishment for murder. You murder somebody, God commands uh, capital punishment. Now, it's been some years back, but uh, some people got together and they determined or they said that capital punishment is cruel and unusual punishment. Number one, when a murderer is put to death, capital punishment, it's biblical. And it's commanded by God. Okay? Number two, it's not cruel. And number three, it's not unusual. And the reason why it's not unusual is because it's biblical. Okay? So it's not unusual and it's not cruel because normally, and I don't know how you know they used to do it, you know, it's pretty rough maybe the, the way they used to do it. But the way they do it today, and by injections or whatever, it's not really cruel. It's pretty merciful, to be honest with you. In comparison to a murderer taking somebody's life cold-blooded, they killed... You talk about cruel and unusual punishment. is for a person to take another person's life and murder them. You understand what I'm saying? That's cruel. And that's unusual punishment. Y'all with me here today? So where does capital punishment come from? What does God think about capital punishment? He is the one that commanded it. Amen? To keep down the crime. Over two-thirds of, of people who commit murder are more than one-time offenders. Amen? Which means they may have been incarcerated and got out, and when they got out, they were a second offender. Does that make sense to you? So if, if man would have obeyed God's law, over two-thirds of the murders that are committed would have been done away with. But because man always wants to get in and he wants to give his opinion about things, what's cruel and unusual punishment in violation of the Word of God, we have repeat offenders go out and other people die and they die and they are the ones that are innocent and they are the ones that die cruel. Do you understand what I'm saying? Okay? It's not cruel. I'm, look at me in the eyes, church. Because some of you are looking at me like, that's cruel. You shouldn't take that position. I take it because the Bible says it. Capital punishment is not cruel and unusual punishment. But remember this. It's not just about protecting man from murderers. The reason why God says capital punishment is commanded is because man was created in the image of God. Because it honors God. Does that make sense? If a person murders another individual because that individual was created in the image of God, if capital punishment is not enforced in that particular situation, what you have is dishonoring God Himself. So don't just look at it like, okay, well this is a protection for us against the murderer. Look at it as honoring God or dishonoring God. To not practice capital punishment is to dishonor God. To practice capital punishment is to honor God because man was made in the image of God. It honors God. Hallelujah. Now, and that's one reason why laws... People get together and they change the law concerning capital punishment because many of those people do it and they don't honor God. 
they don't honor God in their life. Okay? So as a result of that, because they don't honor God, then they change the laws on capital punishment and say, well, we're just not going to do it in this state. So according to the law, according to the covenant that God made with Noah, capital punishment was commanded by the Lord. Now, that doesn't mean that if somebody kills one of your family members, that you become a vigilante and you go out there and you kill them. It has to be in the confines of human government. Romans 13 uh, talks about human government. So if this is to happen, capital punishment is to take place, it has to be done by the government, by the law, the legal system, not by you. Amen. So there are certain things that govern capital punishment. Who does it? Okay. There are other things in the Word of the Lord that um, have to come into effect as to uh, does this person deserve capital punishment? Do you understand what I'm saying? And I sense the deserve. Are there witnesses? In the mouth of two or three witnesses, let everything be established. You can't guess on this. Okay. Well, some people say, well, there's some people who have died and they weren't guilty of murder and they died and they were innocent. Very rarely does that ever happen, church. Very rarely do they get the wrong person. Now, sometimes they do. But it's a rare occasion that somebody died that didn't deserve to die. Again, so there are certain things, biblical, other biblical teachings that govern capital punishment, witnesses, so on and so forth. Uh, are y'all with me here today? Okay, do you understand that? And it's to be done by the legal system, not by you. Okay, you take take it in your own hands. You're going to have a problem. You are going to have a problem. Right? Yeah, I, I would think anytime you try to take the law on your own hands, you got a big problem. Now, if somebody comes into your house and they're breaking into your house and they're going to do your family harm, you have a right to defend yourself in your house. The law will support that. As long as you don't become Rambo. Amen. And you become the executioner. If it's a legitimate defending of yourself in your home, you can do that. That's not murder. Do you understand? There's a difference between murder and killing. Somebody can be killed, but not murder not be committed. There's what's called manslaughter. Manslaughter is not necessarily murder. Somebody died an accident. We call it an accident. But that's not murder. The person didn't necessarily intend on killing anybody, but they did. Are y'all with me here? And they call it manslaughter. So even our legal system makes a difference between what is cold-blooded murder, premeditated cold-blooded murder, versus, you know, an accident, manslaughter, or even your right to defend yourself in your house. Okay, so not all killing is murder. Do you understand? So we see here in the Bible, capital punishment is commanded by the Lord. Hallelujah. We just trust God. We trust His Word. We believe God, don't we? Because we want to honor God. I said we want to honor God. Hallelujah. Amen? Let's go on a little further. Uh, verse 7, And you be you fruitful and multiply, bring forth abundantly the earth and multiply therein. Praise the Lord. Okay, now... I'm going to give you some, I'm going to fill in the blanks here, okay? This is called the covenant that God made with Noah. It's called the Noahic covenant. Now, 
What we need to understand is that this particular law under human government is, is still today. It's still in effect today. It hasn't gone out. It hasn't been phased out. According to God, it's still in effect today. Human government, called the dispensation of human government, is still in effect today. And what he says here is for all people all over the world. Okay? Do you understand what I said? Including the Jewish people. And the Jewish people today still recognize these, these laws that God gave to Noah to govern the human race. You with me? It's called the Noahic Covenant. Now you go to Acts chapter 15 and the church gets together and they try to determine what of the law of Moses is to be brought over and placed on the Gentile believer in the church. In Acts chapter 15 it talks about that. So let's go very quickly over there. I'm actually spending a little more time on this than I wanted to, but maybe it's helpful to you. In the 15th chapter, of course, the Gentiles have come into the church and the question is, uh, what of the law? Praise the Lord. Okay, verse 19. The decision in the early church, James is presiding bishop over it. Um, he says in verse 19, Wherefore my sentence is that we trouble not them which from among the Gentiles are turned to God, but that we write unto them that they abstain from pollutions of idols, idolatry. Do you see that? What does that imply? What does that imply? That they are to worship one God. You see, the Gentiles before conversion would have been involved in all kinds of idolatry. Okay? So now they've come into the church. They've been born again. They've been baptized in water in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. They are filled with the Holy Ghost with the evidence of speaking with other tongues. And so they have been born again. So now the decision is, well, what do we, do we command circumcision, physical circumcision on the Gentiles? So the decision is, we're not going to command physical circumcision on the Gentiles. They're believers. They're born again. But what we do command is no idolatry. Can't worship idols. That means you worship one God. Amen? Okay. Let's keep reading. Um, abstain, abstain from pollutions of idols and from what? Fornication. Uh-oh. Fornication. Everybody understand what fornication is? Okay, so that sexual sin. Abstain from fornication. Hallelujah to the Lamb. Now that includes incest. All kinds of sexual, sexual immorality is forbidden for the believer in Christ to commit. Okay? Next. Uh, and things, and from things strangled, and from blood. Make sure that you don't just go out there and pick up an animal that's been strangled, hasn't been properly, you know, butchered, so on and so forth. Properly prepared food. You can't eat strangled food. And then he says, what? Don't drink the blood. Now, I want you to understand this is just the very basic requirements of the Gentile believers. That's you and I. I'm not Jewish by descent, naturally speaking, nor are you, most of you. So these are the minimum requirements. 
that God has for you and I. No idolatry. We worship one God. No fornication. All kinds of sexual immorality forbidden to the believer. Uh, eating things strangled or blood, which they really go together. Okay, if you eat something that's, that's strangled, then that means the blood hadn't been poured out of the body. So they really go together. So those are the very basic minimum requirements, not all requirements, but the minimum requirements for a Gentile believer who has been water baptized in Jesus' name and filled with the Holy Ghost. Does that make sense? Okay. And again, it's not limited as to what we are to, to, to do. We need, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal. There's still some things in the moral law, according to Romans, the book of Romans, that we still obey. All nine, except keeping the Sabbath day, which is a ceremonial thing. All nine commandments we must continue to obey as a Gentile believer. But what they're showing you is the very basics here in the 15th chapter. Okay? So, physical circumcision is not required for the Gentile believer. Again, but what? Very minimal things. After you become a born-again believer, obviously you're going to keep the commandments. Correct? Alright, other things. No idolatry. Worship one God. Other things. Like what? No fornication, sexual sin, including incest on and on. Uh, what else? No drinking blood. Just the very minimal things. Okay, y'all with me here? Hallelujah. Having given you that then, that falls under what is known as the covenant made with Noah. It's still binding today. So, with Genesis 9 and Acts 15, let me fill you in the blanks here. Uh, the seven laws for the whole race, Jews included. Okay, this is important. Alright? The prohibition of what? Blasphemy. This, this, is, this is a part of it, okay? The prohibition of blasphemy. You're not going to take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Alright? Prohibition of idolatry. There's one God. Prohibition of manslaughter. There's a prohibition of theft. There's a prohibition of incest. There's a prohibition of disobedience to authority. And also, and then number seven, prohibition of eating blood. Those are considered by theologians the seven laws under the Noahic covenant. And they are binding on the whole human race, including the Jews. Okay? Do you understand? Are you with me here today? All right. So we take this, Genesis 9 passage and Acts 15, uh, uh, and put those together. That's where they get this. Amen. Okay. Now that's very important because as we go along here, and we're going to see progressively the 10th chapter, which is the table of nations. Okay. 70 nations. We talked about God speaking in 70 tongues when the law was given. And we talked about 70 nations. Where does that come from? Genesis chapter 10. There are 70 nations or 70 descendants of the offspring of Noah recorded in the 10th chapter. Then you get to the 11th chapter and you see man violating this law or these laws, um, some of them given to Noah for man to observe. Idolatry by Nimrod, so on and so forth. So keep that in mind. Okay? Everybody clear? Now, what I just gave you is extremely important. Sometimes when we hear the Word of God, we don't know how important that is. But when you study the Bible, when you study Scripture, you need to know 
that we're still under that covenant that God made with Noah called human government. And these are the seven laws that are connected to that. They are binding on everybody. Amen? Give God praise. Even the unbeliever. Even the unbeliever. These laws are binding on even the unbeliever. Okay. Now let's go a little further. In the eighth verse, then God gives man a sign or a token of the covenant is called the rainbow. Right? Can y'all see this rainbow here? Amen? Okay. He gives uh, this rainbow as a sign. There was no rainbow before the flood. The rainbow came after the flood. Because in order to have a rainbow, you have to have rain. Don't you never say rainbow. Yeah, okay? So if you were here for last Sunday and you, we, you heard the preaching on, on the, the, the flood... Well, this rainbow came after the flood. So when we have rain, you're going to have a rainbow. And a rainbow is connected with storms. Okay? And this rainbow, God said, is going to appear in the cloud. So you have to have rain in order to have a rainbow because light, as it passes through the raindrops, is what creates the rainbow. Okay? Because what happens, as you know, light passes through those raindrops and it bends the light and you have these colors. There's seven colors in the rainbow. Okay, you with me here? Blue and red are the predominant ones. Hallelujah. You with me here? There's a, there's a green in the middle. Amen. There's so much here. But God gave that rainbow after the flood. First time they ever saw a rainbow. They looked up in the sky and they saw this big, beautiful half circle called a rainbow with seven colors in it, predominant colors of red and blue. And, and that was a sign or a token from God that He would not destroy the earth by water ever again. There would never be a worldwide flood ever again. And that was a token or a sign to all humanity that, that God made that promise or that covenant with mankind. Amen? So when you look at a rainbow and you see that rainbow in the cloud, uh, you need to understand. We look at it. We say that's a beautiful rainbow, don't we? Look at it. We say we talk about the rainbow and how beautiful it is. We talk about the rainbow and how the colors that are in the rainbow, right? But God didn't put the rainbow in the sky in order for us to say how pretty it is. He put the rainbow in the sky so that every time it rains and you see that rainbow, it's declaring the mercy and the grace of God. That God made a covenant with Noah. He made a covenant with all mankind that even though there may be floods, local floods, and there may be storms that come, it'll never be a worldwide flood ever again. It was the grace of God. And so when you look at a rainbow, remember this sign or this token of this covenant that God will never destroy it by water again, but it is reserved under the day of judgment by fire. That will happen. So the grace of God, when you see that rainbow, think about the covenant of Noah. Think about the grace of God in the midst of judgment, making a promise to man that He will not completely destroy man ever, ever again. Are y'all with me? If you are, say praise the Lord. Now, what is interesting, when you and I see the rainbow, we see a half circle. And it's pointed this way. Alright? There are certain cultures that still use the bow in war. When they desire to have peace with somebody, they will lift their bow and they will point it to the sky. This way. Okay? If it's like this, they're ready to fight you. 
they're ready to go to war with you. But when they do this, they're letting you know they want peace. So what God did was, at the time of the flood, His bow was pointed downward to man. I don't have time to go through the, the Bible, but the Bible talks about His bow. He, he, you know, like shooting His arrows at man. In the time of the flood, His wrath and His judgment. But after He did that, that He inverted or put the bow upward like this instead of downward like that. So now it's pointed up, okay? It's a symbol of the grace and the mercy of God. And when I see it, I see a half circle because redemption is not complete. But when you get in the book of Revelation, you see a rainbow round about the throne and it's emerald in color. It's green in color. And it's a full circle. So there's coming a time. Right now, all we have is just part of redemption. We only see half the circle. But a true rainbow is a complete circle, not a half circle. And there will come a time after the wrath and judgment of God Almighty in the future that there will be a full circle when you have redemption completed. Say Amen. So God made that sign or that token of the covenant with, with mankind. That is, this is the sign. I'm not going to destroy the earth by water anymore. Hallelujah. He's got a plan by His grace to redeem man completely and totally as we move through history. Say praise the Lord. Do you understand that today? All right. Okay, I'm not, and now, what is the sign of the token of today for us? If you go through the Word of God, you're going to see as God it makes these covenants, there's certain signs or so, certain tokens. This was the token or the sign of the covenant God made with Noah. What is the sign of the token of the covenant that God has made with us? As far as the church. It's the Holy Ghost. You are sealed unto the day of redemption by the Holy Ghost. So that's the seal or the sign of the covenant day. Is when you receive the baptism of the Holy Ghost and you begin to speak with other tongues. That is the sign of the new covenant, the blood covenant of Jesus Christ. Say praise the Lord. Amen. Amen. How many of y'all have experienced that sign of speaking with other tongues? That is the New Testament sign or token that you have entered into covenant with God when you begin to speak with tongues. It is the sign you have received His Spirit. Okay? Alright, now we go a little bit further and we now see Noah, he falls. He fails. And you and I need to be very careful because we've already talked about he was a just man. He was you know, perfect in his generation. He walked with God. Uh, Noah was a very, very godly man. But Noah failed. If Noah can fail, as godly and righteous as Noah was, if Noah can fail, I can fail. So when I look at Noah and I see the failure of Noah here, I need to get on high alert. I need to look at this and say, this is a warning to me. If a man like Noah could fail, I could fail too. How many of y'all ever failed? Right. Did it catch you by surprise? Did it catch you by surprise how easily you can fall? Even as a believer, how easily you can fail and how easily you can fall. Did it catch you by surprise? Amen. If I fall, if I fall and I fail, fail God, sometimes it catches me by surprise because I didn't realize it would be that easy to do. Don't think it's hard to sin. It is not hard to sin. It is easy for us to sin. That's why we have to stay 
uh, full of the Spirit of God. We have to stay prayed up. Amen? We have to walk in close relationship with God because it's easy for you and I to fail. It's easy for you and I to sin against God. If Noah could do it, so can you. Amen? So we've got to take heed. Now, how did he fail? Well, the Bible's very clear. He became a husbandman. And that means a farmer. And he planted a vineyard, you know. And you know what vineyards produce. They produce grapes. And grapes can be turned into wine. So he's busy out there. And he's working. And he's laboring. And that's a good thing. And he's planted these, this vineyard and everything. Um, and he's having a lot of success. There's a lot of the fruit of the vine that's being produced. And his success becomes his defeat. Because with all of this success and all of these grapes that he had, the Bible tells us that he drank wine. Say he drank wine. And he became drunken. So the Bible is very clear that we are not to drink these alcoholic beverages, things that will make you drunk. And Noah is a key example of what happens to a person who drinks alcohol. He drank the wine. He got drunk. And as a result of that, the Bible says, he took off his clothes. And there he was laying in his tent naked. So his drinking of wine moved him. After, see, he's, you got to start somewhere with sin. And where he started, the sin, sin started in Noah's life by first taking a little bit of wine. So when somebody was, well, I can handle it. I can just, you know, just a little bit, Pastor. Just a little bit. I can stop myself. I can quit. Well, some of you don't like wine. Hallelujah. I never really liked wine. I told you before I got in God, I liked MD 22, 2020 or M, M, Mad Dog 2020. $5, man. Hallelujah. I didn't care anything about the drink. I just wanted something to happen to me. So I'd go in the store. Hallelujah. I think 7-Eleven sold it. Get in there. Mad Dog 2020. Something like that. MD 2020. Cheap drunk, you know. Well, some of you, you didn't like that, but you liked beer. Well, I didn't like the taste of beer either. I just wanted, you know, I liked it because of what it did to me. Some of you liked whiskey. I couldn't even hardly get it down, but I liked it because of what it did to me. You know what I mean? So anyway, praise the Lord. So you need to understand that, that God doesn't want us partaking in these things because you say, well, I can handle it. I can, you know, just take a little bit. I'll take a little sip of beer or a little sip of wine. I'll be all right. No. Because a little sip, just like sin, a little sin turns into a real big sin. Have you ever noticed that? So you sort of give in to a little temptation here and a little temptation there and giving in to a little bit here turns into something real big and pretty soon you've got a big problem on your hands. That's why you and I have to be, be very careful with these things. So he started out, sin always starts out small, becomes big. It always does. So he took a little drink of wine and pretty soon before he knew it, he was drunken. He was intoxicated. Amen. This is what happens to people. 
When they drink a little bit, it turns into a lot. They become drunken. And the results of that, the Bible says, he literally, intentionally, it wasn't because he was just, you know, unconscious, so to speak, and sort of not knowing what he was doing. He knew what he was doing. The words that you use is very clear. He knew what he was doing. He went into his tent and he deliberately stripped his clothes off of his body. Deliberately. Okay? The wording that is used there is not just a person taking off their clothes for no reason. The wording that's used in the ninth chapter is he took off his clothes and it was an immoral thing. It wasn't just taking his clothes off. It was an immoral thing. Are you here with me? See, so a little sin turns into a big sin. And a big sin, as you see it progressively, creates nakedness. What it does is it removes a person from the holiness of life. And if it could happen to Noah, it could happen to you and it could happen to me. A little drink can turn into a big drink. And what that does is it moves you away from the holiness of God. So that he deliberately took off his clothes. And it was an immoral, immoral thing. And the Bible says, Ham walks in and he sees his father laying naked on the ground. Unconscious and naked. But he didn't just see his dad, his father, in failure. He didn't just see his dad laying unconscious naked there on the ground. He saw his fourth son, Canaan, with his naked, unconscious father. So it wasn't just Ham saw his dad naked, you know, and go, and like, oh, no, I shouldn't see my dad like this. When Ham saw his dad naked, he enjoyed it. That's the thought. The Scripture gives us that Ham enjoyed seeing the failure of his father. He enjoyed seeing the nakedness of his father. And he sees his little son with his naked father, his fourth son Canaan. There was something immoral going on there. And the Bible says when Noah wakes up, instead of cursing Ham, his son that had looked upon him with joy in his failure, he cursed Canaan, Ham's fourth son. Noah cursed his grandson, Canaan. So it was more than just Ham, his son, looking at his father. There was something that immoral had taken place. And, and Ham saw, uh, as, I, as I studied the Scripture, Ham saw with his naked father... Canaan in an immoral situation. And when Noah wakes up, knowing what had happened, he said, cursed be Canaan. He puts a curse on the fourth son of Ham uh, for what he had done. It was an immoral, ungodly thing that had happened. Be careful, church. I, and, and I'm not preaching down to you. I'm telling you, for myself, we all have to be careful because little things turn into big things and big things turn into immoral situations. 
And if Noah had not sinned against God, you need to understand this, if Noah had not sinned against God in doing this thing, there would not have been occasion for another person to sin. But because Noah sinned, it created the occasion for Ham to sin, to look on his dad with joy of his failure and his nakedness. And Canaan, to be there with his grandfather. You see, you can't sin by yourself. Your sin and my sin affect other people. I said it affects other people. So we have to be careful. Well, I'm just going to give in a little bit here. A little bit turns into something huge, and something huge becomes something immoral. And then we have other people as a result of that that fall, that fail. So we have to be careful. I'm preaching to myself. If it's not for you, if you don't need it, that's, that's between you and God. But I'm preaching to myself because I know how easy it is to fail. How easy it is to fall. And he thought, just a little bit. Man, that little bit turned into a big thing. And now you got to deal with it. And you know, and yes, the Lord forgave you and you repented of it and God forgave you, but you're still in your mind. And you remember it, not because God hasn't forgiven you, but so you won't do it again. God lets you remember the pain. So you won't do it again, not because you haven't been forgiven. So there's consequences. Even if God forgives you of the sin, you still carry that around with you in your mind. It, the, you know, your flesh, your, your mind, and the devil brings it back to your attention constantly. This is what you did. You fell God. You broke His law. You know what I'm talking about. And the whole time the Lord was saying to you, don't cross that line. You know you're not supposed to be in that relationship. You know you're not supposed to be drinking that. You know you're not supposed to be here. You know you're not supposed to be doing that. Say, oh, it's this, 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 it'll be, be alright. I'm strong. None of us are strong without God. None of us. You with me? You've got to be careful. If He fell, I could fail. We don't want to do these things. We don't want to drink because drinking produces in moral situations. Are y'all here with me today? You say, but it's hard, Pastor. You're creating results in your life that will destroy you and destroy other people and bring curses on life. I want the blessings of God in my life, don't you? So, you know, and again, if it's not for you, if you, you, you're right where you need to be and you don't have to worry about any kind of failure or falling, that's praise the Lord. But I haven't arrived there yet. And I know there's a constant struggle and battle against giving in to that temptation. The little things that become the big things that become immoral. Well, what does Ham do? Ham walks out instead of, you know, again, he's happy his dad's failed. He's happy his dad's naked. He really is. As you read it, you'll see it. I don't have time to read it all to you this morning. He's really happy. And he doesn't go to his brother's Shem and Japheth and say, hey, you know, dad's over there and he's, he's naked and, you know, let, let's, let's cover dad up, you know. Let's cover dad. No. It pub, in a public place, he, he mocks his father, he slanders his dad, 
He backbites his dad. This is the first backbiter in the Bible. His name was Ham. Backbiting and slandering his father who he should have covered. But he, instead of covering his father's failure, he goes out and he publicly, as you read it, you'll see it's a public rejoicing and happiness as he tells Japheth and Sham, Hey, Dad! <laughs> Dad's over there naked! And he's enjoying and he's enjoyed backbiting. He's enjoying the, the failure of a father. And the Bible says, Shem and Japheth get a covering and they walk backwards and they cover their father. And God puts a blessing on Shem and Japheth because they covered their father. One man uncovered, if you will. Noah, Noah's the one that took his clothes off. But Ham uncovered his father when he publicly back talked talk behind his back and slandered him. He uncovered his father. And God, and so prophetically, prophecy comes on him and he curses the situation. But he blesses Japheth and Shem because they covered their father. Amen. You know, when you're dealing with sin, and I know maybe this is boring to you, but I like it. I like it because it helps me. But when, when you're dealing with, with sin, if you're ever involved with people, you're going to be dealing with people's sin. This is the way it is, especially if you're a pastor or whatever. You're going to be dealing with people's sin. But that doesn't mean you have to just glaze and look at it. You can deal with sin and not look. You understand what I'm saying? See, when a pastor's dealing with a woman in an altar, maybe she's just now coming into the church and she's not dressed appropriately and she comes to an altar and that pastor's working with that woman trying to help her to come out of sin and she's not dressed appropriately. He doesn't have to just gawk at her. He can deal with the woman and the sin that's in the woman's life without staring at her. Do you hear what I'm saying? Say, so, well, it was there, Pastor, you know. And, and that what well, I'm just telling you that when you deal with sin, you can walk backwards and cover. Does that make sense? Woo, help me, Jesus. Why? Because we're all weak. We're all weak. And that's why it's important for, for, for women to dress right and to dress appropriately if you're in the kingdom of God or you're in the church because men have a problem with vision. So if you don't dress appropriately, don't think. Don't think that that man's strong enough not to look. It takes everything he's got. All of God he's got not to look. The Bible's teaching us very clear. You don't have to sin when you're dealing with sin. So Shem and Japheth go backwards and they cover the body of their father. And just a spiritual application real fast. If you have a spiritual father that's in ministry and if that man fails, don't be a ham. Don't go out there and backbite and, and, and gossip and 
and rejoice in the failure of your spiritual father, if you do that, you are uncovering your father, his failure. If you're like Shem and Japheth, if your father fails, you will cover him. So I'm going to leave that in God's hands. I'm, I'm going to let the, the, the proper and appropriate rank deal with rank. I'm not touching that. If that man is a failure, I'll leave it to God to deal with him or I'll leave somebody of equal rank to deal with him. But I'm not going to backbite. I'm not going to gossip. And I'm not going to uncover my father's failure. If you do that, you'll be blessed in your life. If you rejoice in the failures of a spiritual father, you have big problems, my friend, because you've got the spirit of a ham. He is the first backbiter in the Bible. You understand? I know men. Men are men. We're all human beings. And all men fail. Amen? And sometimes, you know, if, if it's an equal situation in rank, then, then okay, hallelujah. I, I could show you in the Bible where, where men had differences like Peter and Paul. Paul had to correct Peter. And Peter was in the church before Paul. Amen? But it wasn't a saint in the church going and correcting Paul. It wasn't a saint in the church going and correcting Peter. Amen? It was an apostle correcting an apostle. So whatever you do, and I'm not, I don't have nothing to hide. I don't have, you know, anything to hide today. Uh, I don't have any personal agendas, you know, to cover myself in my failure or my sin. But I'm just telling you, biblically, cover the failures of your father. Don't uncover the failures of your father and rejoice when they fall. See, some saints are like that. You know why? Listen to what I'm saying. I feel the Holy Ghost here today. Some saints can't wait for the pastor to fail or his children to fail. They can't wait. You know why? Because they're in rebellion. And because their life is not what it's supposed to be, or their family's or their family's life is not what it's supposed to be. So if a pastor or his family fails, that carnal saint is going to be a ham. Publicly backbiting. Why? Because they got the spirit of a ham. Amen. And as a result of that, we have curse. A curse on the person who refused to cover a father. His, his children cursed. Hallelujah. Now I do know that Canaan was involved in some things with it, with it he shouldn't have been. But I'm just saying to you this. Listen to me carefully. I'm trying to help you. Again, has nothing to do with me at all. Don't, don't interpret what I'm saying if you want your children to be cursed, don't cover a spiritual father. You go home and you barbecue your pastor for lunch after church, you will lose your children. You know why you'll lose them? Because they will never have confidence in the pastor. But remember this, they'll also remember you don't even have confidence in the pastor so how can I even if they did leave the church they'll never come back they will never come back because you backbite and because you uncover a spiritual father be careful 
And if you've done that and you want your children back in the church, I tell you what you do. It's not impossible. What you do is you tell them, okay? There was a time when I spoke against the pastor. There was a time you heard me say words against the pastor, spiritual father. I was wrong. I want you to know I repented of that. I've changed my heart. I'm not going to do that anymore. Then you might have a chance that your children will come back to church. But if they never hear you repent of that, they'll never come back. Never. You understand what I'm saying? Because it affects generations. I say it again, it affects generations. It didn't just affect Ham. It affected his, his littlest man, the littlest male, the youngest, all the way to the fourth generation. Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't be a Noah and yield to the drinking. Don't be a Noah and yield to the little sin. It becomes the big sin, then immoral. Don't be the Ham that uncovers the Father. Hallelujah. Praise God. It's important. Noah wakes up. Prophetic anointing comes upon him. He begins to prophesy. And he prophesies over his three sons. He puts the curse on Canaan, the fourth son of Ham, and he prophesies a blessing on uh, Shem and Japheth. Now, which leads us into the 10th chapter of the book of Genesis, which is the table of nations. All nations are going to be repopulated by the three sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. All races of people, all nationalities find their roots in Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Okay? But before we get to the table of nations, the 10th chapter would list these 70 different nations that are offspring from these three sons. Noah puts a prophecy on these uh, sons and their offspring. Okay? Are you with me? Powerful, powerful revelation. Powerful prophetic instruction about the nations of the world. Are you with me? And it's not just about geography, it's about redemption. What those nations, what would happen to those nations, what they would do, this prophecy comes out of the mouth of Noah. And it, it is a prophecy that will affect the nations of the world for the future. Are you with me? So we see, verse 24, And Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his younger son had done unto him. That means the littlest male. And he said, Cursed be Canaan. A servant of servants shall he be unto his brethren. Just a side note real quick. The descendants of the land of Canaan, there was so much venereal disease in those people. You see what I'm saying? There was a root of sin in Canaan, the, the fourth son of Ham. Um, so I, again, I say there was, it was um, an immoral thing that took place. It went down through the generations. The Canaanites in the land of Canaan before Israel went and conquered the land 
One reason why God said wipe them all out. Are y'all here? Because of the venereal diseases that was in that culture. There was so much venereal disease in the Canaanites that even the animals were found to have venereal disease. It was horrible. You know, God said, well, uh, you know, people say, well, why would God tell Israel to go and kill all those people in the land of Canaan? Because if they didn't kill those people, it would have wiped out the human race. It was the grace of God. Those people had so much venereal disease, it could have wiped out the human race. That's how bad it was. The descendant of Canaan. So Noah wakes up and he prophesies. He says, cursed be Canaan. Now you need to understand something today. We have Ham, and the fourth son of Ham is Canaan. Listen to me. The curse upon Ham or Canaan, specifically, is not the color of the skin. The descendants of Ham, and I'll get into this in just a moment, uh, predominantly African culture. Do you understand what I'm saying? African, Egyptian cultures, more dark-skinned people. And there's some foolish, foolish Bible teachers that say that the curse that was on the descendants of Ham was the color of their skin. Foolish teaching. Had nothing to do with the color of their skin. They're dark skin, but that wasn't the curse. The curse upon Canaan is subjection. They would be in subjection. They would become, they would be in servitude. Are y'all here? Okay. So he says, and curse be Canaan. A servant of servants shall he be unto his Brethren. Now the good news is this, is that a Canaanite, hallelujah, the Bible's very clear that there's a curse on the Canaanite and they would be in servitude, but the good news is this, is Rahab was a Canaanite. Canaanite. And by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ or being in Jesus Christ, well let me just put it this way, she was carrying the seed. She was in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. She was a carrier of the seed. Rahab was a Canaanite, a carrier of the seed of God. And as a result of that, the curse that was placed on Canaan, the Canaanite can believe and be blessed. Rahab was. And when you talk about the curse falling on a particular group of people like the Canaanites or whatever, you need to understand by the time you get to the end of the Old Testament, there's a curse on everybody. <laughs> and it doesn't have anything to do with me being white. It doesn't have anything to, to do with you being in between. It doesn't have anything to do with you, brother, being dark-skinned. The whole human race is under a curse in need of redemption. Hallelujah to the Lamb. You don't believe me, go to Malachi and read the last couple of verses. You'll see what I'm saying is true. The whole human race is under a curse before Jesus came. And the Canaanite carrying the seed. She's in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. 
named Rahab, amen, is delivered from her prostitution and brought into the kingdom. Let's keep reading. Well, what about Japheth? Okay. We'll, we'll talk about, uh, you know, Ham, the descendants of Ham in a moment, who they are. God shall enjoy, enlarge Japheth. Japheth. This is a prophecy. And he shall dwell in the tents of Shem. Wow! Japheth is going to be large. Okay? Well, of Ham and the Canaanites, you know, uh, there's the African, Egyptians, and so on and so forth. And I'll, I'll give you more detail in a moment on as to who those people were. The Japhetic people, or Japheth, are the European peoples. They are the South American and North American Canadian peoples. Okay? You with me? Uh, Indo-European people. And it says, Japheth, look at this, interesting. Japheth, God shall enlarge Japheth. Amen? Large populations, large amount of people in the white people. When you talk about Japheth, you're talking about the white people. Amen. And not totally white. Amen. Praise the Lord. But he said they're going to be large. They're going to be large numbers of them. They're going to, Japheth throughout history has been the ones, the descendants of Japheth have been the ones, the white people, if you will, have been the ones who have large amounts of land and large populations. Today, predominantly, the descendants of Japheth with is the Gentiles. Gentiles specifically come out of Japheth. The Gentiles predominantly make up the church in this hour. The descendants of Japheth. Gentiles. Say Gentiles. The Gentiles came into the kingdom. Jesus married a Gentile bride. That's where you and I got our chance. But notice where Japheth's going to be. He's going to dwell in the tents of Shem. Oh, interesting. As the white man. is going and conquering and possessing territory, he's going to break into the tents of Shem, the Semitic peoples, which is the Israelites and the Arab peoples. When he breaks in the tents of Shem, that's when he's going to find the one true God of the Bible. Because Shem is the people of Jesus. Naturally speaking, Jesus came out of Shem. Where are you going to find the Lord? You're going to find Him in the tents of Shem. We're going to find the one true God of the Bible in the tents of Shem. No wonder as we preach Wednesday night, Jesus said salvation is of the Jews. You're going to find the one true God, the Lord Yahweh, in the tents of Shem. And Japheth is going to dwell in the tents of Shem. And when he does, that's when he finds the one true God of the Bible. That's where you and I got my chance and your chance. Hallelujah. Say praise the Lord. So Japheth is going to be blessed. They're going to be blessed physically. They're going to be blessed materially. Hallelujah. Ham not so much because of the curse that's on, on that. Uh, praise the Lord. 
But if you, if you find the Lord, you can be blessed and not cursed. And then notice what he says about, okay, let's keep reading about Shem. God shall enlarge Japheth, he shall dwell in the tents of Shem. Woo! And Canaan shall be his servant. Well, that's, 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 you know, servitude is the curse that's placed upon Canaan or Ham. But as he's serving, as Ham is serving in the tents of Shem, he finds the Lord. And as Japheth is dwelling in the tents of Shem, as he's busting into the land, <laughs> you know, we, we talk about America being missionary, we go missionary to the world, really originally. It was just the opposite. When the white man went into the Middle East, he discovered the one true God. Is it was located? He was located in the tents of Sham. To the Jew first, and also the Greek. Amen. Salvation is of the Jews. They were a strict, monotheistic, one God believing culture. If you want to know who the Lord is, and if you want to know where you're going to find Him, you're going to find Him in the tents of Shem. Are you with me? Look at verse 26. Back up a little bit. As He's placed a curse on Canaan, the Bible says in verse 26, and He said, Blessed be the Lord, Yahweh, yod heh vav the Lord God of Shem. You want to find the, the true God, the one God, the Lord, the Redeemer, the one who reveals Himself, you're going to find Him in the tents of Shem. Blessed be the Lord God of Shem. Canaan shall be His servant. God shall enjoy Lord Japheth, and He shall dwell in the tents of Shem, and Canaan shall be His servant. Isn't that awesome? That is a powerful prophetic message about the descendants, the Semitic peoples, where are you going to find God? In their tent. Where's the location? In their tent. What's going to happen to Japheth, the white people? They're going to bust into the tents of Shem, and when they do, they're going to discover the one God of the Bible. What's going to happen to the descendants of Ham? They're going to, in their servitude, they're going to come in contact with the one true God of the Bible in the tents of Shem. I can't preach it all to you today. Come back tonight. Because I want to explain to you, Lord willing, tonight that it's not about your skin color and it's not about your geography. It is about your purpose. And the reason for any procreation, any re if there is a procreation of an individual or a nation, it is for the purpose of the living God. What is important is not necessarily the seed you're your, you know, ethnicity, but the purpose that's in your genes. You understand? God wanted to save everybody. So the whole point is God is locating where He will be found. And it will be in the Semitic peoples. Okay, so praise the Lord real quick. When you read this, is a powerful prophecy. Now, uh, Japheth primarily deals with the Indo-European people, um, Europe, North and South America, people like the Anglo-Saxons, the Russians, the Germans, the Greek, the Spaniards. Ham predominantly is the African, 
Egypt, Canaan, Nineveh, Babylon, Philistines, okay? And Sham is primarily um, the Jews and also the Arab countries, all right? Now, if you want in detail, we went through the 10th chapter in an earlier series and we explained to you who every one of those individuals were, the 70 nations in the world, okay? If you want that tape, you can get it, but that's not my purpose is to explain to you who all, who all these people are. Okay, y'all with me here? But you have a basic understanding as to who they are, right? Okay. Praise God. Now, um, Brother Bishop, just real fast, run over there in my office and get that table of nations. It's over in the corner. And I'll real quickly just show you something. And you can look at this if you want to. Just don't steal it out of my office. Because I can't get it back. I mean, I know I've tried. I couldn't. I, I lost it one time and I couldn't find it. So I, where I purchased it, I tried to get another one. And I couldn't get another one. So I don't think these are available. So don't, you know, go in there and look at it, but don't take it home with you. If he can find it. The big old, look at this. Look how big it is. It took him an hour to find it. But this is the table of nations, the 70 nations. Just like we were saying, there's 26 out of Shem, there's 30 out of Ham, and there's 14 out of Japheth, total of 70. And out of those three, three men, all the nations of the world were populated. So if you want it, you want very specific details about, you know, who your descendant is way back, you can look here. Okay? Thanks. Would you put that back in my office? Thank you. Amen. Now, as we go through the table of nations in the 10th chapter, then, well, let's, let's finish. 28. Noah lived after the flood 350 years. Only two other people lived longer than Noah. That was Jared. Remember Jared? Lift your hand, Jared. Jared lived to be 962 years of age and then only... A Methuselah lived to be 969 years of age. So only two people lived longer than Noah. Noah lived to be 950. Okay. Jared 962, Methuselah 969 years. That tells you, he lived about 350 years after the flood. Noah kept living. Do you realize he lived all the way to the 58th year of Abraham? He lived 10 years beyond the Tower of Babel. He lived a long time. He was born in the year 1056. The flood came in 1656. He died in the year 2000 years. 2006, 10 years after the Tower of Babel. It's a long time. And that's the way the ninth chapter ends. And then we move into the generations of his sons. Hallelujah. With me? Can y'all hang in there with just a little bit longer? Okay. The table of nations. 70 nations. 70 descendants. The whole world repopulated by them. Keeping in mind that powerful prophecy that was given by Noah. So that we, we come to the 10th chapter, we're not just talking about ethnography. We're not, we're not just talking about the origin of peoples. We're talking about very powerful prophetic word from God upon these nations. What they would become, what they would do. History written in advance concerning a whole nation. Concerning destinies and origins and all of these things are coming from God before. History ever happens. Prophetic word, not just ethnicity. Okay? 
So, he talks about the descendants of Japheth here. and We've already covered basically who they are. Um, specifically says to us, so I want to point out to, the, to you, uh, verse 5, by these were the isles of the Gentiles divided. So specifically speaking, Gentiles come out of Japheth. Gentiles. Okay, amen? <clears throat> and then we come to Ham, the descendants of Ham, and uh, the descendants of Seth, I mean Shem, and there are statements made concerning concerning um, Ham and uh, Shem, but no statement made concerning Japheth in the text of the 10th chapter. Y'all hear that? Okay. But anyway, so praise the Lord. Now, uh, just real quick, we have the sons of Japheth, Gomer, that's Germany, Magog, that's Russia, Madi, Jabin, that's the Greeks, Tubal, Meshach, they're connected with Russia, Gomer, you understand what I'm saying? Again, just real quick, uh, verse 6, the sons of Ham, Cush, Mizram, that's Egypt, Put, Canaan, sons of Cush, Sheba, and Havilah, and so on and so forth, okay? Say praise the Lord. Gives you a few... Uh, at that point, a few of the descendants of Ham. Okay, everybody with me? But then we come to something very interesting. Because God, by the Spirit of the Lord, stops right there. And He says, now I'm going to put my attention on an individual. He is a descendant of Ham. Ham literally means to burn. His name is connected with his attitude toward God after the flood. Okay? After the flood, he burned with pride against God for destroying the world before the flood. That's what his name is. When you study, you study, you'll find these things out. You're not going to, you're not going to read it in the Bible. The Bible's not going to say Ham's name means this and this is the why it means this. You're not going to find it there. You've got to study. You've got to find out. The name means to be burning. He's burning with pride. Okay? So God is going to focus on a descendant that comes out of this man called Ham. Alright? You with me? That's going to affect history. Where's he coming out of? He's coming out of Ham, the burning one. All right. Again, it's, it's not because of Ham's skin color. It's not about that. There's a curse that's been placed on his descendant Canaan, right? But they are known, they were known to be dark, dark skinned. All right. Say amen. But Ham, it wasn't about the skin color. It was about the color of his heart. Ham had a heart that was against God. He had a heart that burned with pride against what the Lord had done to the human race at the time of the flood. And so we come to this, this statement made concerning a descendant of Ham. Are you all with me? And the Bible says, And Cush begat Nimrod. Now Cush is a descendant of Ham. Cush begat Nimrod. Now listen carefully. Cush was the, was the one, as we go into the 11th chapter, he's the one that will go 
and began building the city of Babylon. And Cush, um, Nimrod's dad, is the one that will lead the building of the Tower of Babel. Nimrod, his son, only later continues the work that his daddy Cush or Baal started. And Nimrod took all of the titles of his daddy Baal or Cush after his daddy passed. But it was Cush that led the migration into Shinar. It was Cush that began to build the city of Babylon. It was Cush that built the tower, began to build the Tower of Babel. He dies, Nimrod takes that over. Do you understand that? But Cush is the original Baal. Okay? Now, so we see Cush. He begets Nimrod. He began to be my, uh, a mighty one in the earth. A mighty one in the earth. That's interesting. What is that? Why, why would God point that out about Cush's offspring, Cush or Nimrod, that he would be a mighty one in the earth? Because remember, the Lord had already told mankind that he could eat beasts, he could eat the flesh, he could eat the animals. But men were afraid of the animals. So he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. He was the one, he'd go and hunt, he'd, he'd get these animals. Anyway, make, make a long story short, but when you study Jewish writing on the passage, you will find when it says he was a mighty hunter before the Lord, means more than just going out and hunting wild animals and protecting mankind. When it says he was a mighty hunter before the Lord, that means he made himself to be God before the Lord. He's the first man in history to try to dominate and control humanity. He's the first one in history to be a monarch or a king over people. Up to that point, it was the patriarchs, the individual families that were in charge. But one comes on the scene who claims to be God before the Lord. His name, Nimrod, means to revolt or to rebel. He is going to lead a revolt or rebellion of the whole world against God Himself. With the exception of Noah and Shem and the godly line. Noah and Shem are still alive. They're the godly line. They're the ones that are preaching. Hallelujah. But then this evil, ungodly line is here pictured in the Bible. This man who's a mighty hunter before the Lord. He's not just hunting animals, but he's hunting the souls of men. His name means to re rebel or to be a revolter. He's leading the world in rebellion against God Himself, making Himself to be God. Trying to conquer all the human race. One Jewish writer say, says this. He says that it means that he, Nimrod, is the one that incited idolatry. He is the one who stood up against the name of God. He's the one that encouraged everybody to be idol worshipers. So you have this rebel, this revolter, this one who claims to be before the Lord, that He's God, that He's the Savior of the world, telling everybody to worship idols and ultimately to worship Him. 
He's known as the God of a thousand names. One of His names is called Baal. Baal, or the sun god. You with me? Okay. Another Jewish writer says, see, I'm giving you two possibilities. Number one, that He is making Himself to be God before the Lord. He's hunting for the souls of men. The second one is He's the one that is uh, calling people to idolatry Define the name of God. Number three, some Jewish writers interpret it mean when he says before the Lord that there was a time before Nimrod apostatized. Before he fell away that he offered those sacrifices he hunted unto God. So that Nimrod becomes the first apostate backslider in the word of the Lord. There was a time in his early life that he actually offered sacrifices to God before the Lord. Okay? Either way you look at it, he is going to incite rebellion against the Lord God Almighty. Are with me? Hallelujah. And, and, and personally, my personal opinion, and that's all it is, because all I can do is study the history of it and the Jewish writings on it and other commentators on it, my opinion is that all three are very strong possibilities that all of them are right. That he did make himself out to be God. Read this book called The Two Babylons by Alexander Hislop. Okay? That he did make himself to be out to be God. He did make himself to be out to be the Savior of the world. That he did incite idolatry. Okay? The only other one that I found outside of that book was that he was before a follower of the Lord. Because you have to remember, before they traveled from the east to the plain of Shinar, they were all at the Mount Ararat at one time. Which means every one of them knew about the one God of Noah and Shem. Every one of them knew about Adam and Eve. Every one of them knew about Satan. Every one of them knew about the fall. Every one of them knew about the fallen ones, the Nephilim. So there was a time when all the human race were followers of God. Are you with me? That's why I say that all three, I believe, are right. Because he knew about God. He knew the truth. If you will, he was raised in church. If you will, he heard Noah preach. If you will, he heard Shem preach about the one God of the Bible. The Savior of the world. But there came a time when Cush, his daddy, and Nimrod, his son, begin to migrate away from God, as the Jewish commentaries write. And they migrate over into the land of Shinar. Now listen very carefully. So when we look at this, we understand he is a picture of the Antichrist. Instead of Jesus being the Savior, he's the Savior. He's a picture of a one world leader and world, one world government. He was married to a woman named Semiramis. She was in charge of worship. So you have one world religion, one world religion, one world government under this picture here. Very quickly, the Bible says, even as Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord, and the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, say Babel, which really was mean the gate of God became known as confusion after the, the fall. After the dispersion. And the Bible says, Out of the land went forth Asher and built Nineveh. So we see 
the beginning of his kingdom is Babel, Erech, Akkad, Kalmuth, and the land of Shinar. Say Shinar. Woo, that is interesting. That's the beginning of his kingdom. We're going to find out in the 11th chapter how they got there. How they get to Shinar. They migrated over there. Now, Shinar is an interesting word. It literally means it has to do with being born again or a second birth. Or literally means the land of regeneration. But when you talk about Shinar and connect connection to Nimrod, it's not the land of regeneration in connection to Jesus the Savior. It's in connection with a false Messiah, a false Savior named Nimrod. Jewish writers say something very interesting about this land. Now, I'm just teaching this morning. You come tonight and I'll preach, if the Lord willing. But they say something very interesting about the land of Shinar. They say this is where all the dead bodies from the flood came to rest. And they say that Shinar is connected to emptiness. The Jewish scholars say, and I can give you the actual page of where I found this, the Jewish scholars say not only was it the place where all the bodies of the dead came to rest, but it is also, it's an empty place. The, the word means an empty place, connected to an empty place. And the Jewish scholars say these people were empty of the Word of God. They were empty of tithing. And they were empty of the Sabbath. He said it's a picture of people who are empty of God, His Word, tithing, and the Sabbath. That is interesting to me. The Bible didn't say that. But that's what the Jewish scholars that they studied and they knew history said about that place. And this was the beginning of His kingdom. He was the king over Babylon. He was the king over Nineveh. Nineveh means habitation of the sun. Not the son of righteousness, Jesus, but the sun God. Habitation of the sun. He was over that part of the world. And then we will continue in just a moment. But we move from there down in verse 21 unto Shem, also the father of all the children of Eber. These are the Hebrew people. Eber means it is a, is a Hebrew. Shem is the father of the Hebrews, the brother of Japheth, the elder. Even to him were children born. So we have designations here. We have an elder brother, younger brother, so on and so forth. The children of Shem, Elam, that's Iran. Asher, that's Assyria. Arphaxad and Lud and Aram. The children of Ram, Uz and Hul, so on and so forth. And then we see... Um, Beyond that, it's very important to see verse 25. And unto Eber were born two sons. The name one was Peleg. For in his days was the earth divided, and his brother's name was Joktan. Are y'all here with me? If you are, say praise the Lord. Verse 31. These are the sons of Shem after their families, after the tongues of their lands and their nations. These are the families of the sons of Noah after the generations of their nations. And by these were the nations divided in the earth after the flood. Okay, so we're going to find God. Tense of Sham. Hebrew people descendant out of Sham. Our fact said specifically is in the line of Jesus himself. 
That's why so much attention is given to his line. Okay, let's move on. In closing, the 11th chapter. Going back to Nimrod, the cushion Nimrod. The Bible says, and I'm only going to be in the first part of the 11th chapter, it tells us here. And the whole earth was of one language and of one speech. You have 70 nations. The population has grown to about 30,000 people according to those who study population. And so you have quite a few people in the earth at that time. Amen. It's about 340 years after the flood, the Tower of Babel takes place. Some people say only a hundred years based on where it says that the, um, the earth was divided in the days of Peleg. All right. But I don't, I don't hold to that. I believe that it was 340 years, approximately 340 years after the time of the flood. That's what Jewish writers say. And they say 340 is the name, uh, the numerical equivalent of the name Shem. Okay. So about 340 years after the flood, this is when this migration begins to take place. Now, uh, I don't know about the Peleg time frame. Now, verse 11. So we have at that time, the whole earth was of one language and of one speech. Came to pass as they journeyed from the east. All right, so now we have a migration. They're moving from Mount Ararat. And, and the Jewish commentators interpret the word. Again, we read these English words and we don't see this. But the Jewish commentator says when they move, when they journeyed from the east, it literally means the Hebrew lettering there means they journeyed away from God. So instead of hearing the preaching of Noah and the preaching of Shem and, and submitting to the, to the one God of the Bible, they said, we don't want that. We're moving away from God. We don't want the restraints of God in our life. We don't want His commandments in our life. We don't want to serve Him. And they apostatize. So they journey from the east, literally, or commentator from God. Moving away from God. They found a plain in the land of Shinar and they dwelt Shinar, Babylon, Shinar, the land of regeneration, false savior. Shinar, empty place, empty of God. They found this plain. It's a perfect place to build, they thought, a huge city called Babel. And Nineveh, modern day Iraq is Nineveh, ancient Assyria, Nineveh, and Babylon. Iraq is that geography today. And they went to that place called Shinar. Suitable, it seemed. Plain. They can build on. They said one to another, Go to, let us make brick and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and slime they had for mortar. It wasn't something that God made. It was something that man makes. It's a man-made thing. They start building, making these bricks. Right? Burned them thoroughly. Instead of stone, they have brick and slime. They had for more. Remember the altar we talked about? The altar of God? So don't make it out of man-made stuff. It's got to be natural earth. It's got to be stone. We already talked about that. This shows you their departure away from God. 
We're going to make it out of man-made stuff, bricks. All right, y'all with me? I know you're getting tired of listening. I know it's a, a job to listen to this long of teaching, but you need this, okay? As they were building the city of Babel, and as they were building the tower of Babel, wasn't just the tower, the town they were building as well. Bricks were so valuable. But if somebody died, Jewish scholar says, if somebody died building that tower, everybody just kept working. Okay? No weeping, no crying over the death of an individual. They just kept working, building that tower. But if a brick fell down off, off the building and broke, they sat there and cried because it took so much time and effort to make them. We all laugh them out. <laughs> they said, they got together, had a little council together, you know. And what did they say? They said, go to, let us build us a city and a tower. They, didn't, they weren't interested in God anymore. They didn't want the counsels of God anymore. In fact, literally, they wanted God off of their back. They wanted the restraints of God, the commandments of God off of their back. They didn't want to have anything to do with God. That's why you see the picture of Atlas with the sky upon his shoulders. What is Atlas? Atlas is Nimrod lifting God off of mankind, getting God off of their backs. Atlas is Nimrod. They got together, they had a council together. And they talked about it. God wasn't in it. Babylon's a picture of everything that God is not in. World government, world religion, world economy. With a world leader. They got together in this council together and go to let us build us a city and a tower. Town and a tower. Whose top may reach unto heaven and let us make us a name lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. We're going to trust in our ability to save ourselves. We're going to trust our ability to protect ourselves. We're going to build a tower that will reach to the heavens. If the heavens come down again in a violent rain, we got this huge tower that's going to hold heaven up. We don't need God. We don't need God. We leave God out of our life. We'll do it ourselves. We'll build our own kingdom. We'll save ourselves by our, we'll make us a name. We'll save ourselves by our own abilities, by our own name. How many people have that spirit today? In fact, they used to be in the church. But they're like Nimrod apostates. Trying to do it on their own, build it on their own, save themselves by their own name. You do know how they became a member of that society, don't you? In the Tower of Babel? How they were accepted into that priesthood of Baal? When they confessed to a priest. That made them a part of that Babylonian religion. didn't have anything to do with God. Let us make us a name, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. You know? They want to build this tower to reach to heaven. They want to get in contact with those demonic spirits. Ham was very aware of those fallen ones that had come down and had co co cohabitated with the daughters of men. He was very knowledgeable of that. In fact, they practiced... Uh, genetic 
biogenesis. You didn't know that. But Ham and his descendants were practicers of biogenesis or biogenetics. That means they wanted to inbreed aliens. I know this sounds wild. With flesh. Because they had a knowledge of the fallen ones, the fallen angels that had come down and co-opted with the daughters of men. And so they wanted to build this tower so they'd be in, they could worship the demons, be in, activate the spirit world, and for self-preservation. It's a whole, the whole system without God. And behind that, you got this woman named Samaramus. I'm coming to an end. I know you're tired. Well, what does the Lord do when He sees this? And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men builded. And the Lord said, Behold, the people is one. Unity, see, they're in unity. What's the cry of the world today? The nations of the world. Let's get together, let's be unified. One world religion, one world government, one world economy. Unity, unity, unity. With God, without God. One world leader. One world religious leader. And the Lord said, Behold, the people is one, and they have all one language, and this they begin to do, and now nothing will be restrained from them, which they have imagined to do. Go to, let us go down, and there confound their languages that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from thence upon the face of all the earth, and they left off to build the city. God came down and intervened. He didn't just see them. He, saw, he knew what they were doing. But He came down. He intervened. He broke it all up. Josephus said the way He destroyed the whole thing or stopped the whole work was by the wind of His Spirit. He, God shut the whole thing down. You want to know what God thinks about one world religion, one world government, one world economy? This is what God thinks about it. You want, you want to see what God thinks about unity without Him? This is what God thinks about it. He come down and judge it. In the book of Revelation, the 17th and 18th chapter, we see mystery Babylon and we see another Babylon. Revelation 17 and 18, that harlot riding on the back of a scarlet-colored beast is Semiramis and all of her religious systems and worship. This beast represents world government and the Antichrist over that, which Nimrod was a type of and his wife was a type of. Revelation 17 18, the Bible tells you in the last days, it's still going to be around. God's going to judge it. We see where it began. We see where it will end. We see where Babylon began. We see where it will end. Both times, God's going to come down and judge it. He's going to judge the world religion. If you want to know what the religious systems of the world are doing right now, they're coming together. They're coming together. What's the goal of governments? Let's get together. It started that way. It's going to end that way in the book of Revelation. God came down and judged it. In closing... God scattered them abroad. Dispersion of the nations. Maybe that's what it means when the Bible talks about Peleg. In his days, the earth was divided. I'm not sure. But this book right here shows you where those Babylonian priests... Okay? 
who were involved in the worship of Baal, Baal, sun god worship, the worship of Nimrod and Samaramus, his wife. Where did they end up? If you talk about Mystery Babylon and Babylon today, where, who are they today? Where are they today? This book right here will explain to you. It's called The Two Babylons or Papal Worship. Proved to be the worship of Nimrod and his wife by Alexander Hislop. Roman Catholicism today is nothing more than the Babylonian religion. When Babylon was destroyed, and we're talking about way up in the days of Daniel, when Babylon was destroyed, the priesthood of Babylon moved to Pergamos. When you look at the book of Revelation, the Bible talks about that's where Satan's seat is, Pergamos. This Babylonian cult priesthood moved to Pergamos, and then historically they moved to Rome. So that the Roman Catholic Church is nothing but a manifestation of a Babylonian religion set up under Nimrod and Semiramis. You know what Roman Catholicism says? It says, and I'm not trying to offend anybody, you study it for yourself. Don't stay ignorant. Roman Catholicism says today that if you believe in the doctrine of the Trinity, you're just a separated brother. And in the end, you'll come back to Mama. So I told you at the beginning, it's so important that you understand the importance of believing in one God. The Lord God, the one true God that you'll find in the tents of Shem. His name is Jesus. Because in the last days, people who believe in more than one God, which is nothing more than a Babylonian religious system, the belief in more than one God, they're going to go, they say it themselves, they're going to go home to Mama. Are you with me? When I, when I tell you this, I'm not condemning the people. I'm condemning the system. I'm showing you where it came from. Some of you came out of this. So they say themselves, if you believe in the doctrine of the Trinity, you're just a separated brother. And they'll say, come home to Mama. That's why I spend so much time teaching you the truth. Because we can't have mixture. There's only one God. His name is Jesus. Hallelujah. And, and obviously, this book and many other books have been written to show you the history of where um, these Babylonian priests, where they ended up, so on and so forth. Hallelujah to the Lamb. So, we don't trust in our own name to save us. We're baptized in water in the name of Jesus. We're filled with the Holy Ghost with the evidence of speaking with other tongues. We don't follow the false spirit, Samaramus. Yeah. Amen? And when we see world government being attempted, we see world religions coming together. By the way, you can't have world government without having world religion. World religion has to come in force first. Because all the religions of the world get together. We're going to work together. Once they get that in place, then world government will be possible but not until you get them, the people unified spiritually, religiously. Okay? That's where it's headed right now. How I many of y'all know that? And it just happens to be that this very system, that the leaders of this system right now, 
Amen? Getting involved with the situation in Cuba. Getting involved with the situation with the Muslims. Rapidly coming together. You are living in the final days. Right before the coming of the Lord. As you see world religions begin to come together under the, the leadership of the Pope and that system. As you see world government systems coming together. It is a sign that we're moving back to Babylon. And as far as the system is concerned. A world without Jesus Christ. Under the reign of a false Christ, a false Savior, who will claim to be God, and a false religious system, Mystery Babylon, the mother of harlots. Mystery, bell worship in the Old Testament is Mystery Babylon in the New Testament. And that's how it got in the church. That's how Babylon got in the church. It moved from Babylon to Pergamos, from Pergamos to Rome, and established a religious system. This book right here covers the history of Nimrod, the history of Semiramis, and all of those pagan holidays that everybody celebrates and where they came from. Amen? So I hope this has been a blessing to you. Praise God. Noah lived right up there ten, ten years after this dispersion. God come down, judges scattered them, changed their languages. And, and Noah lived 10 more years. He saw all of that. He lived 10 more years. In the 58th year of Abraham, Noah died being 950 years of age. And, and then Abraham's going to come on the scene and God's going to call him out of where? Ur of the Chaldees. He's going to tell him, you get out of Babylon, Abraham. Get out of, ba get out of there. Be a Hebrew, which means to cross over. Cross over the Euphrates. And uh, God's going to have a people in the earth, the descendants of Shem, in whom you'll find the one true God of the Bible, the one true God, only true God. And God is going to set it all up through a man named Abraham, who, by the way, was an Iraqi, who became a Hebrew because he crossed over. And he walked away from all that paganism and all that idolatry and all that false religion and begin to walk with the one true God of the Bible. And by the way, the Bible don't start in the book of Matthew. The Bible starts in the book of Genesis. And the same God that is in the Old Testament is the same God that's in the New Testament. If you think that Jesus just started in the New Testament, you're wrong. He was in the Old Testament. He's the one God of the Bible. Praise the Lord. So, hallelujah. God's going to call that man out of Iraq, out of Babylon. Not just the geography, but the religion. And uh, who was a worshiper of the moon god. He was a worshiper of Allah. And God said, I'm going to show you who I really am. And he revealed himself to Abraham. And Abraham separated himself from his family to walk with this God. His name is Jesus. Let's stand. Father, we come before you right now. We thank you for your goodness, your mercy, and your grace.